last week, coming back to this letter after some time away. Preachers, uh, week by week, are sort of impaled on the horns of a dilemma. What do we preach about? What do we talk about? It's, uh, it's a helpful thing to preach consecutively through books because you have sort of laid out for you what you're going to be doing for a particular Sunday and even for weeks uh, at a time. But even in the midst of that, you know that people are experiencing things, they're going through things. And, and, uh, and you know, you, you, you think, gee, it, what should I preach about? I mean, people are sick, people experience loss, people experience joys, they go through sorrows. What do you... Well, it's striking to me, I, I, frankly, that in the midst of oil spills in the Gulf, famine in Africa, Nashville underwater, in the midst of those things, we find ourselves in this letter of Paul to the Romans. And I think, what, you know, what went through Paul's mind as he thought about what he would write to some people whom he'd never met but who were certainly in the midst, certainly in the midst of struggles very much like our own. In fact, as I mentioned last week, Nero's gardens are just around the corner from them in history. In just a few short years, Christians being persecuted by Nero will find find themselves being lit as torches in his gardens. What does he write about? He writes about the gospel, the gospel of the kingdom in the midst of all of the diversities and difficulties and heartaches that people experience, in the midst of all of the uncertainties of life, there are some things that we need to know. And these things that we need to know are, my friends, the things that sustain us in the midst of all of the ups and downs of life. These are very theological things that we're reading about in this letter. And real theological things can seem to be a universe away from the real needs that I have day to day and week to week. But I want to suggest to you that these real theological things are the things that I need the most desperately in the midst of the uncertainties that I face in the midst of this this world of death, as Eugene Peterson describes it. So Romans 3, 21 and following can seem to be horribly detached from from oil slicks in the Gulf, really isn't. So let's read together and then we'll, we'll look at these verses. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith In Jesus. Let's pray together. Lord, uh, from this dense and immensely important passage, would you take things by your spirit in the foolishness of preaching and give them to your people and feed their hearts with them, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
You may be seated. So we snuck back into Romans through the back door of Romans 16.20, and I, I love Romans 16.20. It's one of those verses that is a kind of a peephole, if you will, and as you peer through that peephole, as you look through that peephole, what you see put before you, frankly, is a display of the panorama of the historic purpose of God, the great purpose of God as it is unfolded across all the centuries of human history. The verse is simply, God, the God of peace, will soon crush Satan under your feet. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your, under your feet. And I suggested to you that this letter to the Romans ought to be understood in the context of that verse and what that verse suggests, this whole story of the Bible. And you ask, what is the Bible about? What, what is this, this Bible all about? What's going on? What is the big idea? And, and I, I just can't get enough of this, honestly. Maybe, maybe you've gotten enough of me talking about it, but the big idea in the Scriptures is simply this. This is what the Bible is about. The Bible is about the resolve, the resolve, the determination of the infinite personal God who is really there, the resolve of God, the determination of God to send a warrior, redeemer, deliverer, savior, king who will crush Satan, who will eradicate evil from the world, and who will restore the world to its original condition of beauty and peace and abundance, flourishing the shalom of God, restoration of the garden. That's what the Bible's about. The Bible is about no more oil slicks in the Gulf. The Bible is about Nashville no longer being underwater. The Bible is about no more famine and drought in Tanzania where I go in five weeks. And the Bible is about no more death and suffering, no more tears, no more aging bodies, No more failing eyesight. No more heart conditions. No more cancers. None of it. That is what the Bible is about. The Bible is about rescue, renovation, and restoration. That's the big story. And when Jesus comes into the world, Mark chapter 1, when Jesus comes into the world, John is locked up in prison. Jesus goes to Galilee. Jesus proclaims, preaches the gospel of God. What is the gospel of God? What is it that Jesus preaches? The text tells us that he preaches the arrival of the kingdom. He preaches the arrival of the inbreaking of the kingdom of God. He preaches the beginning of the destruction, the crushing of the head of the serpent. The renovation and restoration of all things. That's what he, yeah, that's right. That's what he preaches. And at the center of that story, and this is what is so important, I mean, that story is good enough, isn't it? Man, that's a big deal. But at the center of that story is something that is intensely important. At the center of that story is people, human beings. The gospel of God is cosmic in proportion. The gospel of the kingdom extends to the whole of the creation. 
The work of God extends to the farthest reaches of the cosmos. Paul alludes to this in Romans chapter 8. When he says the whole creation is groaning, waiting for its liberation, waiting to be freed from its bondage to decay. But at the center of that story is human beings, people, people like you and me. Human beings were at the apex of the creation. In the creation narrative, Genesis 1, the last thing created is the man and the woman, commissioned by God to steward the rest of the creation, to care for the rest of the creation, to make it fruitful, to make it an evidence of the bounty and beauty of God. Human beings are the last part of the story of creation. They are the first part of the story of recreation. They are at the center of the story of rescue, renovation, and restoration. And the first question for me to be asking myself always, always, you can't ever get away from this. There is an answer to it. But in the midst of this great unfolding drama, the gospel of the kingdom with human beings at the center, the central concern for me is, How can I be right with God? How can I be right with God? How can I be accepted by God? And that's the question that these six verses get to. These six verses are so densely packed. We're just going to have to spend, you know, at least a couple of weeks looking at these things. They're filled with powerful theological words and images And they come right to the heart of what it is that God is doing in this centuries-long, millennia-long, history-long business of rescue, renovation, and restoration. The first thing that God is doing is putting people back in right relationship with himself. That's the first thing that he's doing. There's a word that's used here in the text. We'll, we'll see this again as we come back to this next week. But there's a word that is used here in the text. It's the same word in the original. It's two different words or groups of words in the translations. The word in, in the text is one word in the original, but it is justified and righteous or righteousness in the translations. It's the same word in the original. It just has different reference in the text. And that's why it gets translated differently. And the important word for us, the word that we want to be thinking about this week and next week, is this word justified. Paul uses it in verse 20. He says, by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. He uses it again in verse 24, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And he uses it in 26. This was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. What is this word justified? Now, some of you can give me a definition of it because you've been around these things. Okay? Folks, I don't need a definition. I don't need it for me and I don't need it for you. I need for the reality of this thing to get into my heart. 
to work its way into the depth of my soul so that I understand what justification really is so that it begins to capture my heart and alter the way I live my life. The way I live my life before God and frankly, the way I live my life in relationship to you. What is it to be justified? What does it mean to be justified? Well, simply put, it's this. Justification means that I have been declared innocent. To be justified means that I have been declared innocent. To be justified is to be innocent. Innocent of all the charges. Can you imagine such a thing? It means to be declared innocent. Now, three things we ought to ask. Three things. Why do I need this? This justification. Why do I need this declaration of innocence? Why do I need this? Where do I find it? And how do I make it my own? Now, again, some of you have been around this stuff for a while. And you know the answers to all three of these questions. But I want you to think with me about these things. Don't want for these things to be answers to questions on an exam. Don't want for these to be sentences you read in a textbook. Want for these things to be living realities, life-giving realities for you and for me. There may be some of you who are confused about this. How can I be right with God? How is it possible that I could be declared innocent? So think with me about these things. Why do I need this? Number one. Well, I need justification because I am not innocent. I need justification because I'm not innocent. I'm guilty. Now, now look, I said to the class this morning, um, we're talking about the church and talking about the nature of the church and, and the fact that the church is made up of people who are a mess and that Jesus does an extraordinarily risky thing as the shepherd of the church, when he asks other people who are a mess to be his under-shepherds, shepherding those who are a mess. Mess plus mess seems to equal mess. One thing I know about myself is that I don't want you walking around in the chambers of my heart. I don't want you to see what's there. One thing I know as I pray through these prayers is that I am not innocent. I am not an innocent man. And frankly, I don't want to walk around in the chambers of your hearts. I don't want to see what's there. I don't want to see the confusion. I don't want to see the idolatries. I don't want to see the lusts. I don't want to see the animosities. I don't want to see the resentments. I don't want to see the self-righteousness, the bigotries, the arrogance. Are these words in your vocabulary? I don't want to see it in you and you don't want to see it in me. The thing I know about myself is that I am not innocent. I'm guilty. This has been Paul's burden. He summarizes in verse 23 
of this chapter, what he was talking about for two chapters and more, from chapter 1, verse 18, through chapter 20 of verse 3. For two solid chapters, in one way or another, what he's trying to press home is verse 23. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned. I'm not innocent. I'm guilty. When we looked at this passage, verses 9 through 20 of chapter 3, a couple of weeks ago, several weeks ago, I referred you to Lady Macbeth. You remember Lady Macbeth conspired together with with Duncan to kill the king? And what did she have? She had blood on her hands, right? And you remember what she said? Get it out! Get it out! Out, damned spot! Out, damned spot! It's in Shakespeare, okay? I'm not being insensitive here. And you remember what the physician said? She needs a physic. She needs a medicine divine in origin. Physician can't remove the blood from her hands, the stain on her conscience. You remember Edgar Allan Poe, the poem that he wrote, The Telltale Heart. That heart was dead. What was alive? His conscience was alive. He'd committed a crime. His conscience wouldn't leave him alone. He was guilty and he knew it. I love the line from the Jackson Brown song, The Road. Forget about the losses. You exaggerate the wins. You know, in a poetic form, that's what we, he's just describing what we try to do. We try to mask over the losses. We exaggerate the wins. But the conscience is a relentless and brutal thing and it won't leave us alone. And we're guilty and we know it. Barb and I watched Hoosiers this last week. I was born in Indiana. Sorry, can't help it. Got to go back to my roots sometimes. Watched Hoosiers. You remember Dennis Hopper's character? Shooter. Shooter knew every gymnasium in the state of Indiana. He knew where the, where the boards were bad. He knew where the rims were hard and where the rims were soft. He knew everything there was to know about every one of those gyms because he had played in every one of those gyms. And in the championship game, he missed the shot that would have won the state championship. And all of the pressure and expectation of his whole community came crashing down upon him. He failed in the task. And for the rest of his life, he sought to mask over the failure by moving out into the woods and with alcohol. That's what we try to do, but the conscience is relentless. Why do we need this justification? We need this justification because we are not innocent. We are guilty. We need an innocence which we do not possess. Paul says again in verse 20, by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. That's a pretty important phrase, in his sight. You can fool, I can fool you. Preachers are professionals at this stuff. You can fool me. But you know, Paul is appealing to this this gaze of God and what he understands is that each one of us is going to stand before God. We don't see him now. We will. You will. I will. 
He sees you, you don't see him. The point is, every one of us is going to be arraigned before the bar of the infinite, holy, personal God who is really there, who is really just. He sees. He sees. And not one of us is pure or innocent in his sight. Each of us is guilty. And Paul says in verse 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that's an interesting phrase. It's an important theological phrase. One of these phrases out of this passage that we really need to wrestle with. To fall short of something sounds an awfully lot like scoring a 98 on a test. Two more points and I could have had a hundred. To fall short of something. You have to remember that Paul is immersed in biblical images and biblical language. He is a theologically formed person. He's lived with this stuff his whole life. He's an expert in this stuff. And when Paul says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, the language does not suggest an upward trajectory toward a higher goal, right? It's not scoring 98 or even 88 on a test where the perfect mark is 100. No. Paul has in mind being shaped by the Scriptures, informed by the Scriptures, not an upward trajectory, but rather a downward trajectory, not an ascent, but a descent from the height of glory. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, have fallen from this condition where they mirrored and imaged the beauty and loveliness and goodness and abundance of God through sin, have plummeted to the depths of degradation and death and brokenness and rebellion. To fall short of the glory of God is not to come up a bit short. To fall short of the glory of God is to plunge from that lofty place to the depths of guilt and shame and nakedness and embarrassment. I know this isn't pleasant, folks, but I say to you again and again, the only way I'm going to begin to get healthy spiritually is by starting here. It's by starting here. Why do I need this justification? Why do I need this declaration of innocence? Because I am a guilty person. I am not innocent. I'm not. We talked last week about these three big words. We're going to continue to talk about them. I want you to remember that we're talking here about justification. We're talking about how I can be right with God. The other two words, sanctification and glorification. Sanctification is this progressive work of renovation that is occurring in my life. It all leads finally to glorification, which is that restoration, perfect and complete restoration. What we're talking about right now is the first of these. 
I am not innocent today, my friends. As I look into my heart, as I see my heart, as I know my heart, as I know myself, I am guilty. So where do I find innocence? Where can I find innocence? I don't have it. I need it. Verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, though the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Where do I find this innocence? Where do I find, to use the positive term, where do I find a righteousness that I lack? How do I get it? Where do I find it? That's what Paul is addressing here. All have sinned and plunged from the glory of God, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, though the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. What's the answer to the question? There is a place to find this declaration of innocence. There is this place to find this righteousness. There is a place to which I can go and where if I go to that place, I will hear this declaration of innocence. And that place is Jesus Christ. That place is Jesus Christ. Now, This phrase in verse 22 is very interesting. It's a very interesting phrase. What's also interesting is that I just had a conversation with somebody last night about this phrase, okay? It's just wonderful how God just sort of drops these little heavenly blessings upon you on the Saturday night before you're preaching something. This phrase in verse 22 is a very interesting phrase, the phrase that is translated in the ESV, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. This is a kind of a technical thing, but I want to point this out because it's helpful here in understanding and underscoring that Jesus is what I need, that in Jesus, the righteousness that I lack can be found. In Jesus, there is the possibility of a declaration of innocence. The phrase, through faith in Jesus Christ, actually literally reads, through the faith of Jesus Christ. Through the faith of Jesus Christ. It's a righteousness that comes from God, the righteousness of God. It originates with him. It comes from him. It is to be found ultimately in him, the righteousness of God, verse 22, through the faith of Jesus Christ for all who believe. That's the literal translation of that. Now, here's the technical thing. Please bear with me, okay? It's important. Most of the commentators understand The genitive construction in this passage, are you impressed? Please don't be impressed, okay? This is my job, okay? This is my job to do these things. Most of the commentators understand this genitive construction to be a genitive of object, what is called an objective genitive. That is, Jesus Christ is the object of the believing, Okay? He's the object of the believing. That's how the ESV translates this. The righteousness of God comes to us through faith 
in Jesus Christ. I'm the one believing. I'm the one exercising the faith. I'm the one entrusting myself to Jesus Christ. He is the object of that believing. Okay? That's true. That is all over the New Testament. In fact, it is present here in this passage just a little bit later. Verse 26. This was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Believing in Jesus. That's how most of the commentators understand this phrase. There are other commentators, however, who understand this not to be an objective genitive construction, but a subjective genitive construction. Meaning, this is so important and it's so cool. (laughs) Meaning, Jesus is the one exercising the faith. Jesus is the one doing the believing. And so under that consideration and understanding of it, what, what are we saying? We are saying that there is a righteousness Remember from several weeks ago, we talked about delineated what righteousness is. There is a rightness that consists in God that all he does is right and good and true and just. There is a righteousness that exists in God and the constructions, the original language suggests a super abounding righteousness, a tsunami of righteousness. I am not innocent. I am not righteous. I am guilty. I need what God has. How does what God has get to me? It comes to me. It gets to me first because Jesus has lived the life of believing that I haven't lived. You see that? This righteousness of God is through the faith of Jesus Christ. Now think about it. That's perfectly consistent with your theology. That's perfectly consistent with your understanding of the nature of the person of Christ. Jesus is God incarnate. Jesus comes into the world and takes to himself a nature just like your own. Jesus Every single moment of every single day had to believe his father. He had to believe his father. He had to trust his father. He had to listen to every word that his father spoke and accept every word that his father spoke and believe every word that his father spoke, trusting his father with every word that his father spoke. Why? Why did Jesus have to live the life of faith? For you. For you. Say this to you frequently. The cross behind me points us to the death of Jesus. But what preceded the death of Jesus was the life of Jesus. And every single moment of every single day, the Lord Jesus Christ loved the Lord his God with all of his heart and all of his might and all of his strength. He lived the life to secure the righteousness that you need. I'm inclined 
to take them in a wordy view with respect to this phrase. I'm not just saying that because I happened to have a conversation with somebody last night. I've read the commentators. I was there before the conversation. I'm inclined to believe that what Paul is saying to us here is this. Before Jesus died for you, he lived for you. And the righteousness that you need is a righteousness that he has earned from the Father. He now possesses it because he has lived the life of faith. And it is available. This righteousness is available to you. The possibility of a declaration of innocence is possible for all who believe. The end of that verse. Do you see what we're saying? I am constantly face to face with a heart that is at cross purposes with itself. I am constantly face to face, as was Paul in Romans chapter 7, doing things I don't want to do, not doing things I know I should do. I am a civil war. And in the midst of my civil war, here stands Jesus who has lived the life of faith before me. And because he has, the father finds him well-pleasing. And now Jesus, who died to bear the punishment that I deserve, which we will look at next week, Jesus, who died to bear the punishment that I deserve, placed in the tomb, raised from death to life, now ascended and seated at the right hand of the father, is in a position with his righteousness to give it to me, so that he then can declare me innocent. I want that. I want that so that when my conscience speaks to me and says, guilty, 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 I may say to my conscience, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. What do I need? I need innocence. I need righteousness. Because of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, the one who comes to Jesus, looks to Jesus, embraces Jesus, has every right and expectation to hear from Jesus, innocent, not guilty, and positively righteous. What do I need? I need innocence. Where do I get it? I get it from Jesus who has earned it by his life of faith, his life of obedience. How do I make it my own? Paul tells us in this passage, verse 24, we receive it by his grace as a gift. We receive it as a gift. You open your hands, you say, Jesus, I need to be declared innocent. I want to be declared innocent. You open your hands. He gives it as a gift. He clothes you in it. And he says to you, innocent. There's so much that we could do to talk about this and think through this, but I just want to ask you to contemplate these things. And as we come to this table, you you who are Christians, you who have taken this innocence for yourselves, you who have come to Jesus, know this, know this. There is no condemnation for you. That's Romans 8.1. There is no condemnation for you. There is peace between you and the one person in the universe who really matters, the God of heaven and earth. 
Romans 5, 1. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Romans 8, 1. There is no condemnation for you if you are in Christ Jesus, innocent because of the righteousness of Jesus. It may be that you've never taken this righteousness to yourself. It could be you've never done this. You've never said, God, I'm guilty. I see it. I know it. I see that Jesus is not guilty. He is innocent. I want his innocence. I want his righteousness. He stands before you and offers it as a gift and calls upon you to receive it. Believe it. Take it from him. If you've never done that, in the name of Jesus and standing in his place, I implore you, I plead with you, look to Jesus for the innocence he possesses. Ask him for it and he will give it to you. Let's pray together. And as we come to this table, we can come with glad hearts. We can come with expectant hearts to be reminded of the wonder and the beauty of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Let's stand together and sing this great hymn. It's a great way to prepare us to come to the table before the throne of God above.